Good morning. I am Damaris King. I am, I was just talking about with Jessica how many things I do. I am a wife and a mother and a full-time 7th through 12th grade teacher. And as my side job, and yes, my parents are proud of my side job, I am an attorney. When I do legal work, I prepare wills, living wills, and various powers of attorney for those who need them. And, spoiler alert, everyone needs them. It is on. Can you not hear me? I'll get closer. Is that better? Okay, great. <clears throat> so I decided to become an attorney when I was eight, eight years old because I thought justice should not be out of reach for those without the money to pay for it. In my practice, my limited practice, my goal has always been to make the justice of a life well-ended affordable as well. The question is, what is a life well-ended? I think I am somewhat uniquely situated to talk about this question. I am not elderly. But some of the things that affect us in our older age affect me as well because I have this degenerative neuromuscular medical condition. So things that affect people who are older than me, like fear, like confusion, like dependence on others before maybe you are ready, are things that affect me now at the age of 40. So what do we behave like when we are afraid? What do we behave like when we are weak? Along with possibly some of you, I encounter these problems on a daily basis. And what I want to talk about today is how we plan now to love our neighbors well when we are hurting and older and possibly afraid. So Matt did a wonderful job last week of talking about some of the practical aspects of ending life well. Asset protection is a big thing, can be a good thing. Generosity is always a good thing. There are so many details that are unique to each one of you in planning these things that the advice of an attorney or a financial advisor can be invaluable. I recommend it. I have cards. <laughs> But for my portion of the answer today to this question of how to, life, how to end life well, I want to tell you two stories and I want to show you a bracelet. The first story is about my grandpa. He died when I was seven years old and he was 59. He knew that death was coming for a while. Cancer was destroying his body. Throughout his life, he was a farmer and he worked for the state of Georgia for many years. <clears throat> he had earned a retirement payment from the state. So at the end of his life, he had some choices. What was he going to do with the farm? What would he do with his retirement money? How would he prepare his wife for a long life without him? Many men would have turned away from these decisions in depression and fear, but my grandpa was a man who leaned in. He leased his fields to other farmers with long-term agreements. He had a trust drafted that left property to my grandmother during her life, but would not require her to have to deal with that property at her own death. <clears throat> and he then, 
asked for his retirement in a lump sum and invested it so that my grandmother, who turns 90 this year, has not had to work to support herself in all of the 33 years that she has outlived him. The sons of the men that my grandpa leased those fields to still work those fields today. That grandpa's son, my dad, was the father of five children. I'm the second. My dad was consistently inconsistent in keeping a job. My mom quit college to marry him at the age of 18 and soon became busy taking care of the five of us. So she contributed with various part-time jobs, but we were always quite, quite poor. Stock market fluctuations did not affect us. Visiting a financial planner would have been a joke. What was there to plan? Amongst my siblings, we still, to this day, have a joke about our inheritance that is never coming. We talk about it kind of like we talk about the possibility of winning the lottery, but with less hope. I always joke about the lottery. I plan my winnings from the lottery. I've never actually played the lottery. (laughs) Don't know how I'm going to win one day if I never play, but yeah. Not happening. Neither is that inheritance. My family was the prime example of a family that did not need end-of-life planning, right? Who needs a will when there is nothing to divide? What would we fight over? My parents are 65 and 67, relatively young. My father has the same degenerative condition that I do. My mom has had kidney cancer and a stroke. And yet, neither of them has end-of-life planning in place. Neither one. There is still nothing to fight over. Except, I don't know how many of you can see this. Can you see this bracelet? This is a golden jade bracelet. It's maybe worth about $250, maybe. It is my mother's, was my mother's, um, and it matches the green in her eyes. I always thought it was so beautiful. In preparing for this talk, I actually found out that my dad, my mom and dad are divorced now, my dad gave it to her from money that they didn't have after a fight that she still remembers to this day. So for her, it holds no sentimental value whatsoever. But for me, it's beautiful. And it reminds me of my mother, who I love. And as Jeremiah tells us, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? None of us likes to think of our own death. We are uncomfortable with it, and we somehow believe that if we don't think about it, we will not have to face it. But Christ tells us that we are to follow two commandments, to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Planning the end of our lives well is one very practical way to follow that second commandment. Wills and powers of attorney are tangible love for our neighbor. Our neighbors are our children, our spouses, our grandchildren, 
but our neighbors are also the healthcare workers who will care for us as we age. Our neighbors are those financial fiduciaries who will need to make decisions regarding our money when we are no longer able to. Our neighbor is our church. How do we love these neighbors well as we near the end of our lives? Well, here are three practical choices that I think we can make that will help us love our neighbor well. And this is where your handout comes in. Okay, so you've got three practical neighbor-loving choices. The first choice that you should make is, who should make decisions for me if I am not able? And I'll add to Tony's uh, exhortation that if you own anything, you need to plan. Even if you own nothing, you need to plan. If you exist, you need to plan, right? Because at some point, it is likely that you will not be able to make your own decisions. One in six women, one in 10 men who live past 55 will develop dementia of some sort. Once you have developed dementia, you're not allowed legally to make decisions for yourself anymore. So you have to plan before that happens. As we age, we also spend more and more time in medical conditions and situations where we are not able because we're under anesthesia or we are other, in other ways incapacitated. We're not able to make those decisions for ourselves. If we are in this situation and we do not name a decision maker, that decision is left up to the state. That usually goes well when we leave things up to the state. <clears throat> the state's view is that when a decision maker is not named, they will consider these people in this order. First, they'll consider your spouse, then your adult child, your parent, your adult sibling, any other adult relative, and if they run out of all those, just any competent adult. Okay. That might sound okay. That might sound like the way you would make that list. You might want your spouse to be first and then all of those other people. But remember that these decisions are going to have to be, meant to be made in real time. And the process that the state has to go through in order to choose a person to make decisions for you is long and sometimes not quick enough. And in the meantime, there's no official person making decisions for you. So that could be the doctor, or it could be your children fighting, or it could be your spouse and your children fighting. Lots of bad options. If you make this decision maker clear ahead of time, it's an invaluable time saver and grief saver for those who will make the decisions for you. So how do we do that? How do we make that decision clear? The best way is by in executing a durable power of attorney for health care. This is a document that names a medical decision maker for you. They only make medical decisions for you when you cannot. So if you can in any way communicate, this person doesn't get to make decisions for you. But if you cannot, then everybody knows who you want to make the decisions for you. The other benefit is you can talk to this person ahead of time and talk them through the, kind of, the kinds of decisions that you would actually make. If you can talk to them ahead of time when it's not an emergency, that planning is going to go better. Okay. This document can be revoked at any time as long as you are still mentally competent. 
So durable power of attorney for healthcare. There's also just a durable power of attorney. So if you've got a medical decision maker, that document lets them make medical decisions. It does not let them pay for your medical care. It doesn't let them move money from one account to another to pay someone to care for you. It doesn't let them do all of those things that you alone have the power and legal authority to do. So in some cases, it is helpful to have someone who has the ability, someone you trust, obviously, who has the ability to stand in your stead in certain legal situations. This is what a general durable power of attorney would do. So who should make decisions for me if I'm not able? Number two, how do I want to die? How is it that I want to die? There are a couple of things we can do here as well. One, you can make a living will. The state of Tennessee actually has a living will written out in the state code, and it lets you answer two questions. The first question is, I'm going to look at the wording so I don't get the wording wrong. The first question is, should doctors give me food and water if a doctor has determined that I am terminally ill and there is no reasonable medical expectation of recovery? So if you're not coming back, do you want food and water? Question number one on a living will. Question number two, and these are the only two questions on the living will, do I want to donate my organs? And if so, which ones? You have three choices. You can donate all of them, none of them, or specific ones. You don't want to donate your eyes, but you're willing to donate anything else. You can write all that out and be as specific as you want. That's the living will. This also can be revoked or changed as long as you are mentally competent. The living will and the durable power of attorney for healthcare work together in this way. If you have named a durable power of attorney for healthcare decision maker, that person can overrule your living will. So if you say, don't give me food or water, but then you have a medical decision maker and you at some time have said to them, actually, I'm not sure, maybe I do want food and water, they can then say, give them food and water. So that's how those two work. You've got your living will. If there's no decision maker, those decisions for those two questions are like you have marked on the living will, if you have a medical power of attorney, that decision maker can overrule that. So the third section, how do I divide the material possessions that God has given me when I die? And I'm going to have Scott come up and talk a little bit about some practical things, and then I'll come back with you. Good morning. We we come to church to hear the good news, so I'm going to start off with some good news for you. Um, Did anybody know that when you pass away, that Social Security actually gives you money for a death benefit? Everybody has life insurance. Did you know that? Does anybody know the value of what that is? $255. Does anybody know why it's $255? Because when Social Security started, that's what the average burial cost back then. And it never changed with inflation. So you can go home knowing that everybody has a little death benefit in there. So, um, but, but for those who would like or need a little bit more, um, that's up to you, though. One thing that we do is we work with a lot of with funeral homes. And one thing we're finding is most of the time, 
if you don't have the money in hand or if you can't prove there's a life insurance policy, some funeral homes will not take you. And that's a tough time. Your mom, your dad, your spouse has passed away and you're trying to find a funeral home to bury and all, all you hear is, no, we can't do that here. And there, there's one thing that's really started to bother me. Has anybody seen GoFundMe lately? I'm telling everybody has a GoFundMe page, but the ones that bother me the most, and, and I, I feel for them, but the ones that are saying we can't bury my mom, my dad, to me, the Lord has given us intuition to say we need to take care of things before we get to that point. So that, that's where we have the decision-making skills to be able to do that. Um, so what are some ways that we can be able to have that money for burial? Number one, you've heard of people self-insuring, right? which is a great thing to do. But the downside, specifically when we're talking about how do we divide that money and leaving to the next generation, is what if we need that and there's not money to leave to the next generation? We talk a lot about generational planning, and I'll give you two examples. Um, my mom and dad, they said, Scott, you're an only child. We're leaving you everything we have. I'm, once again, I'm so excited about that. But the downside is it's all in qualified assets. Does anybody know the difference between dying with qualified assets and non-qualified assets? <laughs> One word, taxes. All right. It's kind of like when you go to Sunday school, every answer is Jesus. Uh, in financial, a lot of times it's taxes. All right. So we can self-insure, but the downside is, how are we going to get that money? How are we going to receive it? The second is we can use a form of insurance called life insurance to be able to take care of those final expenses, but also use that as legacy money. So my mother and father plan on leaving me qualified assets. The way that I plan on leaving assets to my next generation is I plan on spending all the money I've ever earned because I earned it. But the money that's going to be left to them is going to be through a tax-preferred or tax-efficient way called insurance. And all of this can be done, but the earlier you do it, the better. All right? Uh, and just speaking, what is a beneficiary? Does anybody know that answer? What is a beneficiary? Something who receives it, okay? So who can be beneficiaries? Anybody. Who else? The state could be. <laughs> Who else? Tr charities or trust. Very good. So a lot of what we can do specifically to leaving money to not only our next generation is we can set up trust and we can set up ways that churches or even our charities that we support and love can benefit from that so that they're not getting $10 a month or $20 a month, but rather we can leave hundreds of thousands of dollars if we want to. And if it's set up correctly, that can even be a tax deduction as we pay for that depending on how we set it up. Um, uh, different types of assets. We talked about leaving different types of assets. Who knows what a qualified asset is? Okay, so qualified, by the, the government deems it qualified like an IRA, a 401k. Money that we're setting aside that can be used for us, but the downside, once again, is if it's not in a Roth vehicle, it's going to be taxed when it comes out. But then when it gets passed to the next generation, how does the next generation receive qualified money? As ordinary income, depending on how you take it, but a lot of times it's considered ordinary income. All right. The next is non-qualified assets. Those are going to be your cash, money sitting in the bank, your gold, any type of asset that's not considered qualified, 
um, being able to pass that down. How can we pass that money down to the next generation? Does anybody know how much we can pass down? You, that, that's the gift. That's the annual gift exclusion. Yes, but you act, you can actually die with up to eleven point four million and not have to pay estate taxes. If you're married, it's twenty two point eight. So anything under that, depending on what type of asset, there's a chance you could pass that down. All right. One thing I want to make sure people understand, though, is if you have parents or grandparents that have mutual funds, and somebody tells them they need to sell them and then gift them away. It's one of the worst things you can do, all right? Uh, I'm, I'm getting in the weeds, but I just, I, want, I wanted to tell you that because that can be a possible big downfall because you get what's called a step-up in basis to the next generation. Make sure that if, if you have no clue what I'm talking about, but you're like, that's something interesting, talk to somebody because that's something you want to make sure that's not held in, done incorrectly right now because that can cost you thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars in the long run on that. We talked about the annual gift exclusion. People say, well, I want to start gifting my money away. What is it for 2019? 25, I think it's a little less. 16, it's 15000 Now, it's 15000 per person, all right? So my mother-in-law's in town today. So if she wanted to give me 15000 <laughs> she could. If she wanted to give Katie 15000 she could. Jack, Eden. So there's $60,000 right there that she could give to us if she wanted to. All right? She also has a husband. So there's $120,000 in one year that our family can receive. Once again, I say that, but if we know how these work, there's ways that we can pass this money down. Not that it's that mutual fund account that's been there a long time. Other than that, there's ways that we can pass that money that grandparents can get to see the use of that money now. That's something that a lot of times they don't, get, they don't get that benefit because a lot of times they die with it and they don't get to see what is it doing for them long term. There are some of the best vehicles that people are able to put money in to see what it can produce long term. I'm telling you, there's some great ways you can do that. Uh, and that's about all I had. And we'll go questions afterwards. So. You took my paper with you, did you? No, you didn't. No, you got it. I got it. All right. So when you are dividing up those assets, like I said before, there's so many details, lots of details, and they all are individual to you again. So it's very important that you speak with a professional. Um, but for the big picture, let's talk about how we do this. The first thing you have to do is choose your priorities. Remember that you own nothing. What has God given to you? And what does God want you to do with his money? Think about it that way. You own nothing. God owns it all. So what does he want you to use it for? How can you love your neighbor through the dispensation of gifts? What is the most important goal? After you think through it this way, what is the most important goal that you have for your possessions? And how do you make that goal a reality? Well, one of the ways that you do that is write down your choices. If I could make giant capital letters and put them up here, if you remember one thing, write it down. Write it down. I don't care how many times you've told your grandchild or your child or your spouse, it doesn't matter until you write it down. Or 
it doesn't have legal effect until you write it down. It still matters. And there are a couple ways that you can do this. So Matt talked about trust. I'm going to talk about wills just a little bit. Wills are documents that serve as, if you want them to, both a will and a testament. The will part says, what is my will? What is my desire for the property that I have? The testament is truly that. It's your opportunity to give your testimony. Now, not many people do this anymore, but there is that opportunity to say, this is the wisdom that I want to pass down along with my property. This is the truth to which I testify. You can do that in your will if you want. Wills can be as specifically tailored as you want them to, and I suggest that the more specific, the better. But remember that wills have really specific and odd rules for how they have to be executed. So you can get the form off of LegalZoom. You can get forms from lots of places, and sometimes that will be sufficient. But you need to make sure that you execute them properly in order for them to have legal effect. One thing that, that wills can do that trusts cannot do is they can name a guardian for your children. So that's more for the younger people who do wills. Um, but if you still have minor children and you want to choose who their guardian would be should you and your spouse die, you can do that through a will. Whatever form of document you choose, make it official, write it down, and execute it properly according to the legal standards. I like to tell people what it takes to be mentally competent to execute a will in the state of Tennessee. If you know generally, you don't even have to know specifically, if you know generally to whom you are related and you know generally what you own, then you are still mentally competent to make a will in the state of Tennessee. It is not too late. Go ahead and make that will. When you are writing these things down, be specific. The biggest inheritance fights are over the smallest things like that bracelet. Decide now who gets those things, especially those things that have emotional value, and you can save so much heartache for your family down the road. After you choose your priorities and you write them down in a legally executed document, then don't stop there. Talk about these documents with your family. Tell everyone who is involved with these decisions. Make sure if you have three kids and you've chosen one to get that ring, tell the other two and tell them now so they can be mad and get over it before you die. Okay? Tell them now. Love those neighbors that you leave behind by taking this mystery out of the transfer of property. Love the neighbors in your family by taking away the possibility for their hearts to lead them into the mire of inheritance disputes. So the bracelet that I showed you before, it doesn't actually even fit my arm. My mom got it when she was very young and slender, and it just doesn't go around mine. <clears throat> it doesn't fit my older sister either. But a few months after my mom decided to give it to me, my sister saw it in my house. And she was aghast. She was so angry. She said, of course this bracelet belongs to me. I have green eyes like our mother. Your eyes are brown. <laughs> right? 
of course it should belong to her. And in that moment, I could have said, you're right, take it. If you really want it, it is yours. But like any true good little sister, I said something along the lines of, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh, right? (laughs) The two of us, grown-ups, were fighting over a little tiny shiny toy. My sister huffed and left the bathroom, and I thought this was finished, but before she left my house that day, and without my knowledge, she went back into my bathroom and she took the bracelet. (laughs) We were grown. Let me remind you, we were grown. She took the bracelet. Months later, after an intervening decree from my surely exasperated mother, I got the bracelet back. I have it still. Morgan wears it sometimes. Still fits her. Um, I won, right? But now, when I look at this bracelet, the memory of my mom's eyes is tainted by this memory of covetousness and wrath and deceit. And it is no longer an object of joy for me. And my mom's not dead yet. We're already having this dispute from a family that has nothing, really. Even if you think you have nothing, you still have important decisions to make about ending your life well. We can all spare our loved ones now and in the future, our neighbors, this kind of pain by taking simple steps to make our decisions known before our time runs out. We can choose, we can write our choices down, we can tell the ones we love who should make our decisions how we want to die, and who's going to make our decisions, and how to divide our things. Thank you. Questions? Do you want some new questions? I'm not going to answer a single one, but um, <clears throat> there are questions that you may have uh, related to all of this, and I can, I can moderate or direct uh, if you have some. I do want you to know, too, that <clears throat> we also have copies of a sample living will uh, here. There, aren't an, there are not enough for everyone, but there are a lot of couples here, it, it appears, and um, you can certainly leave with one if you would like. But any questions for any of these? Yes. All debts, and, and those debts will pass down. Um, 
whatever instrument you have set up to pass that property. I've seen that. So uh, and that had to be posted for a certain period of time, and, and that's what takes, you know, that's what adds to the settlement of these things. When it's cloudy, I, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but when it's cloudy, I mean, I can come in and I can say, you know, judge, because at that point it's the judge that's deciding. I can say, judge, you know, I, I'm best friends with this guy. He wanted me to have that brand new truck. Making that up. And at that point, his estate has to fund an attorney to go to court. It may take a week, a month, a year. It may take $5, $5,000, One of the things you can do to avoid that kind of thing is to write a clause into your will that says any, first of all, write a will. Second, put a clause in there that says if someone disputes this, they get nothing. If you do that, no one can do that thing right there. And, and another thing, one thing that, um, so my mother and father, like I said, I'm an only child. Um, has anybody ever heard of POD, payable upon death, at, at the bank? So a lot of times money can't be passed down until the estate is completely settled, the will, everything. But a POD, I can show a death certificate, so if I needed money to be able to pay for the funeral or whatever, I have that ability to do that. So that, that's that's an easy situation to resolve if you didn't want to put that person on the bank Okay. What about the do not resuscitate? Like you're just saying you don't put them through the water, but is there a DNR that's a separate document? Yes. So this living will is just those two questions. The living will is just those two questions that I talked about before. A DNR is a separate document, and it is specifically do not take any life-saving measures to bring me back. So it's a broader do not do anything than the living will.
Yeah, so there are several different avenues that you can use uh, your house. If it is titled in your name, your name and your spouse's name, your house will transfer directly to your spouse. It won't go through your will. Life insurance, you name a beneficiary, it goes straight to that beneficiary. It does not go through a will. Lots of the retirement funds that you have in different accounts, anything that you name a beneficiary on or have that option to do, that's going to go straight to those beneficiaries, and it's not going to pass through the will. So there are, there are a lot of things that you have that will probably pass that way. Then there are other things that you need to take care of through that will. Do you, do you need to assign an executor to a will or to an estate? And then if not, if you don't, is someone assigned? If, do you recommend someone inside the family, outside the family? Um, yes. Uh, so yes, a will will have an executor. Usually you're going to name an executor and an alternate. Um, whether you name someone within your family really depends on if you have someone in your family that you think is competent to fill that role. So if you have an executor for a will, they're going to have to marshal that probate process through. So they're going to have to have some competency with that. And you have to consider the emotional state of that family member. So if it's someone who is very close to you and you know they're going to have a really hard time with grief, they may not be the best person for the executor. So it's just, it's a very personal choice. Any other questions? Or even comments? Uh, there may be some wisdom from you that we want to hear on this. Whether So it need not be a question. If you have a comment you want to add to what you've heard, we'd certainly love to hear it. We have no experts in the room. We have a lot of people that know more than some of us, <clears throat> but we learn this together. Yeah. Guidelines for choosing an executor? Yes. Yes, there are. They're not, they're not official guidelines. I mean, I'm coming. <laughs> there aren't official guidelines for choosing an executor, um, but you want someone who is capable of dealing with business problems. You want them to be able to work with the clerk of court. So they're, they're going to have to have some business sense. You also want someone who's going to be able to keep it together even though they're sad that you're dead. Those are the two big things. They need to be able to work competently in a business or legal setting. They don't have to be an attorney, but they do need to be able to get through that process. If there's somebody who can't get a driver's license because they can't figure out the process, don't make them your executor. Um, but it's complicated, but it can be done, right? Um, so someone who can competently handle those processes and someone who's not going to be so um, hampered by their grief that their normal ability wouldn't come through. Yeah, it's your choice, and it really, really depends on how your family processes things. You know, If you have a very emotional family, I would go outside the family. If you have less emotional people, I would go inside the family.
Yeah. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, Catherine Butler is an MD at Columbia University College, uh, a surgeon, uh, has written for Desiring God, that's John Piper's ministry, Christianity Today and the Gospel Coalition, author of a book entitled Between Life and Death, subtitle, A Gospel-Centered Guide to End-of-Life Medical Care. Now, we're going to finish this series in three weeks with end-of-life decisions. Nate is going to work through some of those things. This book does as well. He may reference this. We've not talked about it. But I've read enough of this book to recommend it to you. It includes a sample of a living will, and I've not compared it to to the one that's available right here for you. But um, resources are available, and we want to uh, try to connect you with those as much as, as best we can. Next week is Reframe and Retirement. The week after that is um, Funeral Home Matters, uh, kind of what's that like? And some of you have been through that, actually making some of those choices uh, recently. And um, so we're, we're going there. And, and Jim uh, Taylor from Williams Memorial will be with us that day. So um, reframing retirement, funeral home, and end-of-life decisions. Here's a living will if you, sample. If you would like to, to take one, uh, there's enough for most of you, I believe. So thank you, uh, Scott Damaris, for helping us through this. See you next week. <laughs>